I am thrilled to begin my teaching ministry among you today as your intentional interim pastor by drawing your attention to what you see on the screen, justification, the heart of the gospel, heart of our message, everything about us. Our text is this verse in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17. We'll be looking at the, at the theme thought of this verse this morning. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This was the verse that God used to transform the life of Martin Luther and that sparked the entire Reformation movement, a movement that transformed not only the church but the entire world. At the age of 21, Luther got caught in a violent thunderstorm. He thought he was going to die. He cried out that he was going to change his life. He dropped out of law school and entered a monastery, Augustinian monastery, to become a monk. And in that setting, every three hours, day and night, the monks would be summoned by the ringing of a little bell to attend chapel services where they would chant psalms, recite prayers, and listen to sermons. Some of us struggle with coming to church for like one hour a week. Can you imagine doing this every three hours, day and night? But that wasn't enough for Martin Luther. He longed to experience the peace of God and his favor, and so that's why he became a monk, thinking, okay, if I could just renounce the world and worldly success, maybe I'll gain God's favor and acceptance. So he becomes this monk. He's summoned to these chapel services day and night, every three hours. But in addition to all of that, to draw attention to, to, to God in his life and to deny himself, he would oftentimes sleep in the cold of winter on the floor without blankets. He would fast up to three hours uh, three days, excuse me, uh, every week. In addition to all of that, there were occasions when he would spend like six hours in the confessional booth trying to recall his every, every sin that he had ever committed. He was wearing out the priests who were listening to his confessions. And they said, Martin, come on back when you have something really serious to confess. And so he did this day and night, no peace, no assurance, the question that remained in his heart and mind was the question, how do I gain the favor and the acceptance of God? Well, now, coming to this passage of Scripture, having been a monk for some 14 years, he was given the privilege of teaching university students from Paul's letter to the Romans. And so he's preparing his lectures, and he comes to this verse. And it greatly troubled him. He pondered the meaning of this phrase, the righteousness of God, for days. Up until now, he had basically been reading the verse in the translation of the Bible that the priests had access to, which was in Latin. And the Latin word translated here as righteousness, justificare, essentially means to make righteous. And so the Latin church fathers were convinced God makes us righteous as we're faithful to the practice of the sacraments and do other good works. So that's why he was doing all of this activity to, to, 
to hopefully find the very favor and acceptance of Almighty God. But now, as a result of the work of a Renaissance scholar named Erasmus, he had access to the New Testament Greek translation, the, 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 the language in which the New Testament was originally written. And there the word translated righteous doesn't mean to make righteous, but refers to to declare righteous, to count as righteous, to regard as righteous. And so he began to think to himself, could it be that God declares people to be righteous before him while they are sinners? And so being an Augustinian monk, he turns to the writings of Augustine, and there he finds where Augustine said, yes, God in grace declares sinners to be righteous, not because of our works, which are sinful, but because of the work of Jesus Christ. And having read that, the lights came on for Luther. Joy fluttered his heart. The guilt was gone. And he would later say, at that moment, I was reborn. And this passage of Paul, Romans 1.17, became to me a gateway to paradise. So today, I want to draw your attention to this theme that transformed the life of Luther and in time changed the church and the entire world. It's called the doctrine of justification by faith. Now you say, what in the world does that mean? If you and I were having a conversation and we started using terminology like pass patterns, touchdowns, extra points, running plays, what would we be talking about? Football, very good, yes, football. What touchdowns, extra points, and all of those things are to football, justification is to the court of law. So this is a legal term, okay? It's the picture of our standing before a judge. In this case, the judge happens to be God himself. The evidence is brought in, we're found to be guilty, what we deserve is eternal condemnation, but the judge of heaven and earth declares, you have right standing in the eyes of, of the court, you are free to go. So that's the meaning of this term, justification. So why then am I kicking off my teaching ministry among you by inviting you to think with me about this truth of justification and its implications for our lives. Why? Three reasons I want to draw your attention to by way of introduction. First of all, because what we're talking about here is the very heart of the gospel in all of Christian faith. And so what follows, if we're not clear here, we're not going to be clear about a lot of other stuff. We're not going to be clear about the nature of God about what sin is, about Jesus' mission in the world. We're not going to be clear about the nature and the purpose and the message of the church. We're not going to be clear about why should we give money to the church? Why should we serve the church? Why should we treat people with respect outside of this place? Every area of, of the Christian life is impacted by our understanding of this term justification by faith. So this is crucial stuff. Secondly, I'm drawing your attention to this theme because this is the doctrine that answers the deepest, most existential question that you and I could ever consider. And that was Luther's burning question, how can I, a guilty sinner, find acceptance with a holy God? 
If you and I had even a little inkling about the holiness of God, about his justice, all of these attributes of God that, that declare to us who he is, we would be gripped even as Luther was gripped with this burning question, how can I find acceptance with a holy God? And if God is pleased to answer that question by this term, you and I had better figure out what it means. So again, crucial stuff. Thirdly, I'm drawing your attention to this theme because this doctrine is the basis of all solid, true assurance of salvation. You see, we must have assurance of salvation if our Christian lives are going to be vibrant and persuasive. But we won't have assurance if we're not clear in our understanding and our thinking about justification. So for these three crucial reasons, I want to draw your attention to this theme today. So you, I hope you have your, your outline ready and you can fill in the, the, the gaps there, the blanks. Let's consider each of these five areas. First of all, who is the author of this justification? Well, here's your answer. The author of justification is completely God. So we could actually translate this verse, for in the gospel, the righteousness from God or is revealed. It is out of God. God is the source of this righteousness, this acceptance, okay? Now, Luther called this an alien righteousness. Now, what he meant by that is, we don't have it, we can't earn it, God gives it. So the ground, rather the action of justifying us, is entirely God's. Now, nothing is more clearly taught in Scripture but that by nature you and I are not righteous. We're a bunch of messed up moral failures. Look at these verses with me from Romans chapter 3. There is no one righteous, not even one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We sin in thought, word, deed, motive. We omit doing the good, oftentimes that God commands us to do. We commit the wrong that God says not to do. And we're consistently engaged in such behavior. So we do not have a right standing in the eyes of God's law. And yet such an, uh, a right standing is absolutely essential for our salvation. A holy, righteous, sin-hating God cannot allow anyone into his heaven who does not have a perfect, righteous standing. So how are we going to get it? The answer is God himself provides it. Okay, so justification is a purely legal action on the part of God as a judge in which he declares us to be just. Now, justification does not make any change in us inwardly. This is why I think a lot of Christians struggle with the matter of assurance. They're very much aware of the fact they still mess up. They do things that are disrespectful, you know, and they... They engage in other behavioral patterns that are just not honoring to the Lord in any respect. And so they are very much aware of that kind of behavior. But you see, justification does not remove sin in us. God begins to do that through an action called our being born again or regenerated. And he continues to do that all through our Christian lives. But in justification, God does nothing in us. As a judge, he's making a declaration 
about us. He pronounces we have right standing in the eyes of his law. So let's talk about what are the implications then of all of this? Well, there are a couple that I want to draw to your attention to. First of all, since it is God who justifies, this is a declaration that no one can cancel or annul. In our, our uh, legal system, judicial system, we have what is known as the right of appeal, which essentially means if a lower court comes out with a verdict that you don't particularly like, at least theoretically, you can appeal all the way up to the Supreme Court. And once this, the decision comes down from the Supreme Court, that settles it. The court of all courts, the capital, big capital S Supreme Court is, of course, God's court. And if a decision comes down from God's court that you have right standing before God the judge in the eyes of his law, who or what is going to overturn that declaration? Nobody, right? So Paul can write in Romans chapter 8, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen. Who's going to do that? And his answer is, it is God who justifies. And so when Luther was gripped by this reality, I mean, it changed every aspect of his life. He had stood before the court of God, trembling, tortured with a sense of guilt for years. But when God broke through and showed him the reality of this verse in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, this introverted, depressed monk became the fiery, passionate leader of a Reformation movement. You see, as a Christian, you need to know that you are loved and accepted by God, that he's not out to get you, he is for you. And this is where it begins, with the knowledge that in Christ we are justified now and forever. So that's one implication. A second one I want to mention is this. Since it is the God against whom we have sinned who declares us to be justified, we need to realize we are in the realm of sovereign grace and undeserved mercy. By nature, I'm not righteous. In fact, my sin provokes the holy wrath of God. And so if the God against whom I have sinned declares me to be righteous, I've got to realize I am in the realm of sovereign grace and undeserved mercy. So let me ask you, has God declared you to be righteous? The court of heaven is a terrifying court when the declaration comes down condemned. But it is a court filled with mercy and grace when the declaration comes to you justified. So the author is God. Secondly, the nature of justification involves two things, a negative and a positive. Negatively, he pardons or forgives us of all of our sin. Positively, we find acceptance. So let's look at each of these areas briefly. First of all, God pardons or forgives all of our sin. Now just think about this. <clears throat> when God pardons or forgives sin, he forgives all of it. The sin nature with which I am born, which theologians refer to as original sin, actual sin, my sins of thought, word, deed, motive, all of these things, sins of omission, sins of commission, he forgives all of it. 
And as a believer in Christ, I am even pardoned for the sins I have not committed yet. Now, let's understand something. God is not only presented in Scripture as a judge, but also as a father. If you're a parent, and one of your kids does something against you, or that one of your rules, or, you know, bites his kid's sister or brother, you know, does something wrong, is that person still a member of your family? Well, of course. But because of that behavior, it is intruded in the relationship, right? And so it can only be restored if the child says, Mommy, Daddy, I'm, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Please forgive me. And then the relationship gets restored. The same thing is true with us as, as Christians. God, the judge, declares we are totally forgiven, permanently so. But as a father, when we mess up, we need to confess that to him so as to be restored in our sense of fellowship. But legally, it's already forgiven. And so Paul can write in Romans 8.1, there's now no condemnation, condemnation being the opposite of justification, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So think of it. I mean, this is incredible. In a moment of time, we are transferred out of a realm of condemnation into a state of pardon and justification. And friends, this is an act of God that is never reversed. Never reversed. So justification involves the pardon of all sin. But it also, next, involves acceptance. Look at this quotation on the screen. <clears throat> we need the voice which says, not merely, you may go, you are let off your penalty, but you may come. You are welcomed into my love. So in justification, God only, not only forgives all of our sins, past, present, future, but he welcomes us into the orbit of his, his love. And so God accepts you, he loves you, he is for you. Now, this leads to a third area. And to put it in the form of a question, how in the world is this even possible? You know, if, if a human judge finds this defendant before him or her, the evidence is brought in, you know, the jury goes out, comes back with its decision. We, the jury, found, find this person to be guilty as charged. And then the day comes for sentencing. And this person stands before the judge, and the judge says, this court finds you have right standing in the eyes of the law. You're free to go. We'd want to put that judge in jail, right? So how is it that a holy, righteous God can possibly pardon sinners and give them acceptance? How in the world does all of this work? Well, it leads us in the third place to the ground of justification, which is the work of Christ. Two aspects of his work that we need to understand, his life, his death. So first of all, in his life, Jesus perfectly obeyed the will of God. You see, if all Jesus had to do to save us was to die on the cross, not trying to in any way belittle his sacrifice, no, of course not. But if that's all he had to do, theoretically, he could have come into the world as a 33-year-old man and gone right to the cross. But he had to obey the will of his father. 
And so he comes into the world as a child. There are laws that are kept in terms of his infancy, coming into the temple and so forth. We see him at the age of 12 in the temple being about his father's business. A little bit later in his life, he comes down to a river and he tells a relative of his named John the Baptist, John, I want to be baptized. And John wants to blow the whole thing. Lord, uh, I mean, I need to be baptized of you. And Jesus says this in response, Matthew 3.15. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus fulfilled the law of God, right? All righteousness. He perfectly obeyed the will of God for you because you can't. But then in addition to that, in his death, he took upon himself the punishment of a broken law. Peter describes it like this in uh, 1 Peter 2. Speaking of Jesus, he himself bore our sins. That's the language of substitution. He bore our sins. He didn't have any sins, but he bore our sins in his body on the tree. Now, let me illustrate this. How many of you have ever watched a hockey game? Let me see your hands. Okay. I did not grow up with hockey. Uh, we have a daughter who plays hockey. We have a grandson, her son, who plays hockey. He's like 11 years of age. So I'm learning to appreciate hockey. And I've come to understand that if a player on the, on the ice does something against the rules, that player must go into some kind of a box, right? For a few minutes, anyway. What's that box called? A penalty box. Okay, penalty box. So what happens if the person who commits the penalty happens to be the goalie? Does the goalie leave the net unattended? and go into this penalty box? No. What happens? A player on the ice from that team becomes the substitute. That player didn't do anything wrong, no infractions, but takes upon himself or herself the penalty of the goalie and goes into that penalty box, which I understand is also called the sin bin. I mean, there you go. So that's the whole picture of substitution. So the ground of this justification is the work of Christ, the obedience of his life and his sacrificial death. All right, let's go further. How does what Jesus did come to have any value for me and for you? What is the method that God employs to justify guilty sinners? Here it is. The method is imputation. You say, what in the world does that mean? Well, it essentially means to charge something to an individual's account. It's what you do when you go shopping. You grab something off the shelf. You go up to the cashier, put it down, and with the item, you drop your plastic card. And that item, the, the amount is put on your account. That's the meaning of imputation. Now, in justification, there is a double charge or double exchange that takes place. And I want to illustrate it for you this morning by uh, sharing with you how it was brought to my attention when I was about 11 or 12 years of age by a church custodian. He gathered a group of us together, and he said, Rich, hold out your hand. Okay, hold out my hand. That hand represents your entire life. And he puts on that hand an object like this. And he says, Rich, 
This book is a record of all the sin you've ever committed. Thought, word, deed, motive, sins of omission, sins of commission, sins you haven't even committed yet, Rich. They're all written down in this book. And a holy God looks down from heaven and sees this bad record. Rich, you're in deep weeds. You're in serious trouble. There's no way that a holy God can simply wink at your sin and say, well, you know, boys will be boys. No, Rich, it doesn't work that way. He can't bring you into his heaven as long as you have this bad record. So what is, what's the plan? Well, Rich, hold out your other hand. Okay, here's my other hand. Rich, let's say that that other hand represents Jesus Christ and his life. What God did, Rich, was to take your record of wrongs, all of it, and he transferred it to Christ. And like the person on the ice who takes the place of the goalie, Jesus is your substitute. He died for that bad record. He didn't have a bad record. He had a perfect record, but he took upon himself your bad record. So when a holy God, Rich, looks down on your life, does he see a bad record? No, he doesn't. It's all gone. Right. But neither is there a perfect obedience, which you must render to God. Only perfect people get to go to heaven. So, Rich, how are you going to get a perfect obedience? Okay, remember this hand, Rich, represents Jesus' life. Here's the record of Jesus' life. Constantly, faithfully obeying the will of God, 24-7, never since, perfect obedience. God takes the perfect record of Jesus, and he transfers that to you. And so when he looks down from heaven, he doesn't see a bad record any longer, that's gone. What he sees is a perfect record, the perfect record of his son, Jesus Christ. And on the basis of that, God declares that you have right standing before him. That is the method. So, we're not only saved, please hear this, we're not only saved by the death of Christ, we're saved as well by the life of Christ. Both were absolutely essential for your being pardoned and accepted. All right, one more, more question. What's the means of justification? Well, the means is faith. And this is stated several times in our, our key verse. It's repeated for emphasis. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, beginning to end. Just as it is written, he quotes from the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. So let's ask a few questions about this faith. First of all, what is it? What is faith? Well, it has to do with self-commitment, trust reliance upon. Okay, another question. Who's the object of this faith? Well, that's an important question to ask, wouldn't you think? Because every religion in the world talks about faith. Buddhists, Muslims, Mormons, Baptists, Catholics, every cult, every religious group talks about the importance of faith. And so the value of your faith depends upon its object. All right? 
So who's the object of this faith? Well, look at what Paul writes in Romans 3.22. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ plus nothing. I come in all of my brokenness and I personally trust in and rely on Jesus alone for this justification as he's offered in the gospel. All right, one other question about this faith. How strong must my faith be to experience this pardon or this justification, this right standing with God? I mean, a lot of Christians struggle with this because they're aware that their faith isn't so strong, and so sometimes they even wonder if they're Christians. It's not the strength of your faith that saves you. That's turning faith into a kind of a work, and we're not saved by works. It's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith that saves you, Jesus Christ. And so I want to say to anybody who's troubled over the weakness of their faith, listen, stop looking at the strength of your faith and look instead to its object, Jesus Christ. So here is a slide that summarizes what we've talked about this morning. The author of justification, God. Nature of it, Involves pardon or forgiveness and acceptance. The ground of it, the work of Christ, his obedient life, his sacrificial death. The method, imputation, God charges my sins to Christ, his obedience to me. The means, his faith, our believing on Christ as he's offered in the gospel. Two questions remain. Number one, are you justified? In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells the story of uh, two men who went up to the temple to pray, one religious, one not so. And the religious guy, a Pharisee, stands in a prominent place, drawing attention to himself and thanks God, boy, I'm not like, you know, other guys. Yeah, I fast twice a week when the law said fast one day a year. And I give 10% of all my income to support your work, God. That's got to count for something. So he thinks acceptance comes by the performance plan. It doesn't. And so Jesus says this about the other guy who's a tax collector. He stands at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. In a little bit, when this service is over and we leave, will you go home today justified? Will you? Well, you will if Jesus is your hope and you've turned to him in faith. If you've taken that step, then regardless of your moods or your struggles or your past or present, you know, even future moral failures, you are justified. So one other question, if you're justified, is that reality the basis of your assurance and the source of your identity? Because if it isn't, what we try to do is to puff ourselves up, trying to persuade ourselves, you know, we're not as bad as others, and we'll try to find acceptance in life and security through our work, through um, having kids buying stuff that we really can't afford, 
going on many vacation trips, you know, doing what the kids at school do to kind of gain their approval and acceptance. We'll do all kinds of things. How about if instead, starting tomorrow, when we wake up and our feet are planted on the floor for the first time, we offer a quick one-sentence prayer to God in which we thank Him. God, I thank you for justification. That exchange where Jesus gets my sin, I get His obedience, and that is such affirmation and acceptance that I want to live today for your glory. Friends, may this message of good news remain the foundation of this church. The core of its message, core of your life, a message of hope, assurance, and confidence before God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that by your Spirit we've received grace. Thank you for sending Jesus to a cross he certainly didn't deserve to be our substitute, that we might become your forgiven, righteous people. Thank you for love and acceptance. May this theme of grace continue to be the source of our hope, source of our identity and security, the foundation of this church and the core of its message. And may it motivate us as we head into a new week to live before others in ways that honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.